This is the California Tribal Families Coalition Podcast, Episode 1, Bracken versus Holland, Washington, D.C., Supreme Court. Kimberly, go ahead and introduce yourself first. Okay. So I'm Kimberly Clough. I have the honor of being the legal director at California Tribal Families Coalition. And I'm going to ask Laura to introduce herself. Hi, I'm Laura Swoboda, and I am a policy analyst here at California Tribal Families Coalition. On to Geneva. Geneva Shaw, I serve in the role of Training and Curriculum Development Director for California Tribal Families Coalition. I'm an enrolled member of the Hoopa Valley Tribe, and I descend from Yurok and Karuk peoples. Diana. Good morning. I'm Diana Heimstadt. I am a policy analyst as well with California Tribal Family Coalition. Bonnie. I'm Bonnie Pullen. I'm the Director of Finance and Program Operations for California Tribal Families Coalition. Josh. And I'm Joshua Martinez, the Engagement Coordinator at CTSC, as well as Chumash in the San Inez area. I am currently the host of this uh, talk, which we will we'll be ex- talking about what happened yesterday on the Brackeen versus Holland case uh, through the courts. And Kimberly was there first time in support with a whole bunch of stories that she will get into. But we are usually going to be talking about questions about the Brackeen case, which not a lot of us understand, like me, who is not a lawyer, and and with these fantastic women of power here. <laughs> uh, we each have perfect backgrounds in ICWA cases, as well as uh, tribal affiliations and everything like that. So first off, first, who has the first question for Kimberly to uh, answer? Or try to answer. Yeah. <laughs> This doesn't go to the substance of the case, but I'm curious how many people get in to watch the argument. So the Supreme Court had COVID protocols, which really reduced the number of people that could go in. And as COVID has lifted, they've changed those protocols a little bit. But um, I think there was probably about 80 people who were able to go into court as members of the public. There's also a number of folks who are admitted practitioners to the Supreme Court. Those would be lawyers. They have a separate line at the Supreme Court. And I think about 35 of them were able to go in. They also leave space for people who are newly admitted to practice in the Supreme Court. So some of the chairs there. But it was kind of um, remarkable walking in how actually small the chamber is. It's quite small. Um, I was in a seat towards the back of the room and you don't feel very far away from the justices you can you know really see them you can see their expressions so it actually has a quite an intimate feel when you're in the room it was packed for sure yesterday um there's tremendous interest obviously in the in the case and then of course there's like lots of lawyers up front as well so we do have uh bonnie who had a question and it basically she wants to know like what does it mean when they kept referencing the tribes as fungible oh yeah um so bonnie good question it was kind of an interesting line of questioning that the court got to before i answer that i'm going to give just a little bit of background so that like kind of why we were in that place. So the court was um, was addressing a challenge by the state of Texas and a group of non-native folks who wanted to adopt native children. And on the other side was the United States def- 
defending the Indian Child Welfare Act from that constitutional attack by Texas and those families, and then also the intervening tribes. And the two bases for the um, constitutional facial attack on tribes were commandeering and equal protection. And if you've joined us for um, the Brackeen breakdown, gone over the background of the case and what those two arguments really are about. And one of the elements that the court really zeroed in on pretty early is what we call the third placement preference of the placement preferences within ICWA. And those are placement preferences where Congress in a in a goal or in a, a, a hope of having Native children remain close to their community, hopefully within family, within the tribe, in the event they have to be removed from their parents, that they not be shipped off far away, that they stay in community. And so they developed and put into the law the placement preferences, which basically say, if we can, first and foremost, if a child's going into foster care, we want them to go into a family placement. And second, if let's say there's no extended family placement, then we want them to go into another tribal family from their tribe. And then there's the third placement preference, which is to go into a family from a tribe, essentially any tribe. And the justices, a couple of justices really had a lot of questions about that because the idea is that we were arguing that these are not racial preferences um, when it comes to application of the Indian Child Welfare Act. These are not about the child's race. They're about their citizenship in the tribe. And so when you look at that third placement preference and it says the child could go to any tribe, it's like, well, wait a second. The child's a citizen of, let's say, Cherokee Nation. Why would it make sense that they could go over to, say, Navajo Nation? Because that's, if it's about citizenship and not being Indian, it's about the citizenship, right? That's kind of like saying like, hey, you know, Kimberly, you're Canadian and we want to keep Canadian kids connected to Canada, but you're also in North America. So we could place your children in Mexico because it's all part of North America. And you'd be like, well, wait a second. No, it's, it's about being Canadian and the citizenship in that country, not just a general affiliation with North America. So the court was really wrestling with this idea. And I will say that the attorney for the tribes, um, whose name is Ian Gershengorn, he is an appellate litigator at Jenner Block, which is the law firm that um, represented three of the four intervening tribes. He did an amazing job of trying to have the justices and explaining it to them. Because one thing that I think is sometimes lost when we think about the Supreme Court is that these justices they don't know substantively many of the areas that they are asked to make important questions on. None of the justices know child welfare. Now, Justice Gorsuch has experience in Indian law, and the court obviously has heard Indian law cases before. In fact, they just heard the Castro Huerta case, um, which had to do with jurisdiction. But having the justices understand that, for example, yes, the child is Cherokee, a citizen of Cherokee Nation, why would we be okay or why would we want them to go over to Navajo Nation? And that was, you know, because in fact, one of the children in this case, of course, the underlying adoption cases are resolved in this case. So there's no actual child that will be affected by any decision of the court. But so one of the underlying cases, the child was Cherokee and Navajo. And if you say, well, just generally Indian children should generally be in, in native families. Well, that's kind of racial. It's not about their citizenship. That's a little bit problematic, like North America generally, not about their you know actual citizenship in a country. So that's when the concept of are tribes fungible? Is one tribe just the same as another tribe? So citizenship's not really important because they're all kind of the same, but that would be racial classification if you say they're all kind of racially the same. And so it was very important to have the justices understand that no citizenship in the tribe is a very specific thing. So what's the common thread 
between tribes if it's not their race or their ethnicity. That was really what the justices were trying to get to. And Ian's response, I thought, was excellent, which was they are, and I'm very much, um, you know, kind of summarizing, but the tribes are situated similarly under the Constitution. There is commonality between Cherokee and Navajo that's not based in culture or spirituality or religion. Of course, there may be some commonalities there, but the core for purposes of defending the statute is that they have the same legal standing and they are the same kind of legal entity under the Constitution and under the law. So in a way, they are fungible for purposes of how we think of them legally. They are not fungible for purposes of language or or whatever. Now, the truth is that there probably are some distinct tribes who have some fungibility, to use that same word, culturally. Now, why would that be? Because there have may have been a group of people who lived on the coast of California who got split into multiple tribes, but ethnically or linguistically were very connected. And there's also groups of Native people who were stuck together, who weren't the same ethnically or linguistically. And so you do have places in which the racial makeup of folks has an intersection with the citizenship or the governance or the this nationhood of folks. And that's where it gets kind of confusing and it seemed like the justices were struggling with that. But I thought that um, Ian did a great job of you know, kind of pivoting that question away from where the justices seem to be going, which is this must be a racial classification if tribes are fungible. And I think he did a great job of explaining it. So Bonnie, I hope that answers your question. In lawyer in lawyer form, I was way too long. Sorry. No, no, no. That's 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 good because you, the explanation is better, and also it explained a lot to me because, as I said, I'm not a lawyer, so it helped me out a lot. And also taking uh, the classes that Geneva's been telling about what it is kind of helps with understanding everything. Um, so yeah, because with the opposing counsel that I was hearing online, they were always using they were using terms of like race, race, race base. And then they were giving examples. I believe one of their examples was like, what's the difference between like Latino, like any uh, children of color or anything like that, mm-hmm. like that, like what's what's the difference between them and compared to a, 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 a native ch- child? Right. Well, and, and Josh, that's really a question at the core of the case, right? That's one way of, of describing it. Like, what's the difference between a, an African-American child and a tribal member child? Should, you know, and if we treat an African-American child differently under the law based only on the fact that they're African-American, that's impermissible um, inequality based on race. We don't do that. And so the court is really the, the other side that the attorney, as you mentioned, was trying to get the justices to kind of grab onto this idea that being Native isn't about citizenship, which we can treat people differently under the law based on their citizenship. They were trying to really get the justices to believe that being that a native child is really just a racial classification, the same as any other racial classification. And therefore, you can't treat that child differently under the law. Right. That's a violation of the equal protection um, uh, under the Constitution. And the argument back from the tribal side is absolutely not. Being native is a is a citizenship. It is not racially connected. Now, the Supreme Court has wrestled before in the baby girl case and is wrestling in this case with things like blood quantum, for example, because if tribes utilize blood quantum as a methodology of creating citizenship, doesn't that mean that citizenship is here, but really what's underneath it is race, because if it's all based on blood quantum. So one thing that had to be argued 
was that not, not all tribes base citizenship on blood quantum. And by the way, this didn't come up in the argument, but you know, it, it bears saying yeah. that where the concept of blood quantum come from, it was superimposed by the federal government onto tribes. This is not something that tribes came up with because it's a really dysfunctional methodology for determining citizenship, but it was foisted on tribes. But anyways, so tribes have whether they wanted to or not, you know, they have embraced, some tribes have embraced the idea of utilizing blood quantum as an element of citizenship. And some tribes have, for example, residency. Do you live on the reservation or did you, or did your relatives live on the reservation? Some tribes have just other attributes. And there are times in history where people that were not racially native had tribal citizenship. The example that we often use is the freedmen from the Cherokee Nation. And in some of the briefing, there was another discussion of a tribe that allowed the husband of, an, of a tribal member, woman, and the children from that um, relationship to be adopted into the tribe. So there are instances where tribal membership is not wholly connected to a person's, say, blood quantum or their, their, their ethnic background. But that's complex and kind of confusing. And so it takes a lot to get justices who are unfamiliar with these concepts to understand it. And of course, Texas and the families on the other side want to capitalize on that kind of confusion or the ability of people to have um, strong feelings about that. I think the other reason that it came up so much, Josh, is that not only is it really at the core of one of the two main arguments, but the court also just last week heard a case um, about admissions into universities. Uh, University of North Carolina and Harvard have admissions policies, as do other universities, that, um, that give preference to people of cer certain ethnic backgrounds. And there's a lawsuit brought saying that's unfair you, you, because, of course, there are government funds that go to help fund those universities and other reasons why um, folks felt that universities shouldn't use racial classifications to provide preference in admissions. And so it was clear, especially in Justice Kavanaugh, he very much had that on his mind because he asked several questions about, well, what would happen if a, uni if the, if a university gave preference to Native students in admissions? Because, of course, he's reflecting on that they had just heard this case about um, it was actually brought by uh, Asian students who felt that they were disadvantaged by um, uh, preferential admissions for other kids of color. And the response to that was mixed from our side. I have to say that um, there was yeah some some mix there, but I thought that our side handled it really well. And um, and I thought it was you know good questioning. I mean it's it's got to some of the core issues and some of the core confusion. So overall, I think the the arguments and the questions around equal protection went where we thought they would go. And I thought that the tribes were able to put all the information in front of the justices and were fully heard on the issues. Um, so that was good. You know, that was good. And the other thing that happened was that it was supposed to be 50 minutes of argument time for each side. So the United States um, and the tribes had 50 minutes and Texas and the families had 50 minutes. We were there for three hours, which is really pretty unique. Um, and I believe that that shows that the justices were really engaged and really wanted to understand the issues um, in an authentic way. And that's also really encouraging because I think at the end of the day, 
The better argument is that the Indian Child Welfare Act should remain for sure. So, so, because we've got to wrap it up a little bit real quick, but it's fine. Um, let's, let's, if, does anybody else have any questions? Uh, Geneva, Diane, the cop. I'm just curious, Kimberly, like when you left there and the day was wrapping up, like what was your kind of overall emotional kind of baseline in the way of like hopefulness or, you know, just kind of where were you at when leaving and wrapping up the day? Um, I would say overall more optimistic than as I walked into the court. And the reason for being more optimistic was one, the justices were very engaged. It didn't feel like it was kind of um, already a done deal in any way, shape or form. All of the justices asked questions. They asked excellent questions. So, and because I believe our arguments are better, the more that that our, that everybody got to kind of present and um, answer those questions in a good way, just feels like there was more time that was spent on under, the court understanding that there is no equal protection violation in ICWA and there is no com- anti-commandeering uh, problem. So yeah, optimism. And then also leaving and walking out and being awestruck by like, wow, that just happened. And then coming outside and there was a beautiful gathering of people. Um, there was a drum, um, there were banners and the, and the tribal leader stepped up to a mic and spoke um, beautifully and eloquently. Yeah, I'd say by the time that it was time to actually leave the court, um, it, was, it was good. Uh, cautiously optimistic. All right, so uh, what will be the next steps um, after this hearing that just passed? Like, what's the next thing we'd have to do? Waiting, 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 waiting until probably June. The end of the term is July 1. So the decision has to come by July 1. Okay. Um, And there's been some speculation that, you know, it could be late spring and then some speculation. No, this is pretty complex. They asked a lot of questions. It'll take longer for the decision to be written, but a written decision will, will come down. We have no warning it's coming. So lots of people will be checking their Supreme court um, notices and pop-ups for several months. And then when the decision comes down, that's it. Right. We live by that decision um, and we just have to see what the court does with it. Uh, Diane, did you have a question? Yeah. What could tribes do in the meantime to prepare, you know, as we hope for the best plan for the worst? What can what can our tribes do? Well, I would say that number one priority, right, is to continue to build their own tribal infrastructure to protect their families and their children. That's critical. And that's critical regardless of the outcome of the case. And I'm going to just point to two reasons why that's critical. Again, regardless of the outcome. One, I'm an optimist and we win and that's great, but the other side is not going to stop coming. So a win here doesn't mean it's the end of the conversation or the end of the fight. And two, tribes are better at um, protecting their children and reunifying families, regardless of ICWA. They simply are. And so even if ICWA stands or ICWA falls, we know that Native children do better when they, when unfortunately, if they have to be removed from their family of origin, 
families heal better in tribal systems. So continuing to invest in, in tribal infrastructure is always really the best practice when we're either seeing attacks on ICWA or not seeing attacks on ICWA. So that would be my advice. And then, um, you know, I think it's also great to say thank you. And so reaching out and saying thank you, for example, to the attorney general for his support on the amicus brief, um, it's still you know, showing gratitude, even in these times that are really hard, I just think is a good human practice. So again, thank you for listening to the California Tribal Families Coalition. If you are interested in knowing who we are and what we do for protecting tribal children and promoting the health and safety and welfare of tribal families, please go to our website at caltribalfamilies.org or you can contact us as well at 916-583-8289.